Appreciate the team this morning, and uh, so grateful to, to see you with us as well. Just seems that uh, Faith should have got me some chocolates or something. <laughs> Don't you think? I got her some, on Valentine's Day, I, I got her some chocolates and a nice card, and her response was, where are the flowers? So <laughs> I'm just just concerned here that... Uh, <laughs> I want you to join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 7, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We were here last week, and I decided to turn this into a two-week series. This might turn into a three-week, so we'll see how this goes. But uh, in fact, uh, if you don't mind, I realize you've already stood, but let's stand one more time in deference to God's Word. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord, this is your Word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Amen. Beginning here with verse 1, Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. You may be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, we did talk about Jesus' remarkable admonition and how it must have surprised his hearers when he said to them, Thou shalt not judge. And then he introduced to them what is considered to be the law of reciprocity. What you give, you will tend to give back. And what measure you give it will be the same measure it will come to you in return. But this morning, I want to go a little bit farther with what Jesus was teaching here and preaching and sharing with this. When he said this, why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to that plank in your own eye. How could you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's. Well, last week we talked about the thimble and the bucket. This week we're going to talk about the plank and the speck. Someone said that you can divide all the people in the world into basically two categories. Everybody else and you. Now, there are two circles. And I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about it. Which circle are you in charge of? Important question. Important answer. The answer, of course, is there is only one of these circles that you're in charge of. And that is you. The you circle. The you circle. Which circle are you not in charge of? Everybody else. That's not your circle. That's not your circle. You see, Jesus is not being subtle here. There are other people's faults. Everybody else's. And then there are my faults. 
Now, you think I'd be much more aware of my faults than other people's faults. You'd think I'd notice my problems first because they're my problems. But the truth is, often I don't notice them at all. Plank? What plank? What could you be talking about? I just don't see it. But interestingly enough, I often have great clarity on your problem. And I fail to take responsibility for my life, and I get really good at seeing other people's problems and blaming them for my situations. What Jesus is telling us is that if you're going to be in right relationship with God and with other people, maybe the number one thing we need to have is not another self-help book is not another seminar to go to, is not even another sermon to listen to. Jesus says, if we're going to be in right relationship with him and with each other, we ought to get a mirror. We need to see ourselves clearly. Do you know what my problem is? My problem is my mother, or my problem is I didn't have a father. My problem is my spouse. My problem is I don't have a spouse. My problem is the place where I work. My problem is the fact that I don't have a place to go to work. My problem is you. You see, we are very adept at, many of us, where I can see everyone else's problems and I can see my little problems, but I think that I have my problems figured out. But here is the actual problem. This is the big plank. I can't see that my problem is, and and, and just wait for it, my problem is me. I cannot see that my problem is me. I cannot see that what is really dragging down my life and causing me the most pain and the most difficulty is me. I need to look at myself in the mirror and see the problem. So I blame others, I judge others, I avoid responsibility because it's not my problem, I'm thinking. People, in fact, go through their whole lives and they never even identify, let alone take responsibility for, that the problem is them. This is so common. In fact, you're thinking right now, you wish somebody were here this morning to come and listen to this message because they need to hear this. Because you know their problem, right? But here's the good news. The good news is the person who needs to hear this message is right here. And that person is you. We need to hear this message. I need to hear this message. You need to think about this. And if we listen with an open heart, perhaps God this morning, in his grace and his love for us, will reveal to us the plank that keeps us from the life that he wants us to live. Let's ask the Holy Spirit right now to touch us and speak to us and reveal, Lord, that plank that you want me to deal with. Truth is, we're pretty good at avoiding and accepting blame. We learned this when we were young. Uh, A mom and dad tried to teach their little son about how good God is by asking him questions like, who made the sun? God did. Who made that tree? God did. Who made Big Bird? 
God did. Well, one morning, Mom was walking into the little boy's room, and of course it was a train wreck. There were toys everywhere, clothes on the floor, food spilled, blasted on the wall, carpet stains. She asked that classic parent question, who made this mess? God did. God did. (laughs) When our oldest son, Caleb, turned 16, due to the generosity of his grandparents, He was gifted a 1998 Honda Civic EX. Now, uh, that was an old car, but it ran well. And he got it in April, I believe, when he got the car. It was a sweet ride, however, and he was as happy as a clam to have it. But, you know, one of the hard realities of life and growing up is that things don't last very long. Before uh, December of that year, Caleb had his car hit three times. Three times. In less than eight months, he had his car hit three times. And that was very frustrating. And what made that frustrating was every time I hit his car, (laughs) it was never really my fault. It couldn't be. Yes, he put it in the driveway exactly where it should have been. But I wasn't used to having the car in the driveway. It just wasn't something I was used to. And so it had to be his fault. I I tried to figure out every angle. And, of course, I did hit the car from every angle, from from the front and the back and the side. I hit that car every angle but one. I tried to kill that car dead. That car was like a magnet to me. I don't understand it. And the problem, of course, is when you hit... A car in your driveway, you've damaged two of your cars. I mean, there was obviously something wrong. Something was amiss, wrong with my backup camera and my van. I'm not sure. It just had to be. I'm thinking if his grandparents hadn't given him that car, this would not have been a problem. It was their fault. It was his mother's fault. And I couldn't figure out how to to make it her fault. But I'm sure that she had done something. Or I wouldn't have kept hitting that stupid car. We got to the point that every time I walked out the door, Caleb got really nervous and (laughs) just wondered what was going to happen. What's the one area of your life where you have not taken responsibility? What's your plank? God, help us see ourselves clearly this morning. That's what God wants to do. Jesus wants us to own our plank. He wants us to deal with our plank. Now, I want to take you back to Genesis for a moment. And that classic story, we understand it. We've heard it so many times. But in Genesis, we're told that God created human beings in his image. We're told that God blessed those human beings. He told them that they had responsibility. He gave them dominion over the earth. He told them to reproduce and fill the earth. He said, take charge, be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and every living thing that walks on the earth. God made us to be responsible. It, it, is, it is a godlike thing to be responsible. In fact, I would argue that, that we are happiest when we have responsibility. That is God's gift to us. So every day we live, we are responsible. So how am I going to spend my time today? I will decide. How will you treat other people today? You, you will decide. 
How are you going to think today? What's your attitude going to be today? You will decide. What will you spend your mind thinking about? You're going to decide. God made us to be responsible. That was his intent in the garden from the very beginning. And then in the garden, he gave them one rule. He said to them, all this is yours, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, we know the story, and they did eat. The first man and the first woman took the fruit. And of course, we're dealing with that mess today. But of course, notice what happens in that story. God asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to eat from? And you remember Adam's response. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, last week we read that we we talked about how the fact that when there's judgment, it causes distance from. And when there's When there's love, there's identity with. What is Adam doing there? Whoa, this woman you gave to me. This woman you put here. You you feel Adam backing off. You feel the distance created. Never did Adam say, yep, my bad. You gave me this commandment. I should have done this, but instead I did that. But please, please don't blame Eve. This is all on me. Instead, Adam throws Eve under the bus. It's not my fault. It was the woman. And by the way, it's not just her. It was the woman you put here with me. You gave me. So who made this mess? God did. God, this is your fault. How many of us today look at the mess we created... And when it comes down to it, we think, who made this mess? God, it's your fault. It's not my mess. It's not my doing. It's yours. When God questions Eve, we see the brokenness continue, and Eve looks for somebody else to blame just as quickly as Adam did. Some of you may remember the the uh, old uh, uh, reading uh, Paradise Lost when you were in high school, maybe college, John Milton, uh, that old, old uh, story. Well, in book eight, there's a wonderful long portrayal of the first man and the first woman blaming each other. And John Milton ends with these words. He says, thus they in mutual accusation spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning. And of their vain contest appeared no end. Now question. Were Adam and Eve the last married couple to spend fruitless hours in mutual accusation? No. Now listen to me. That doesn't mean that we don't have conversation and we don't have hard words to say. Of course we do. And there are times when we have to. But this plank that Jesus is talking about here is this spirit of not accepting responsibility. It's a spirit of blame and accusation and condemnation where we refuse to to take our own responsibility. 
Some of you know the name Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in Georgia. Some of you are familiar with him, I'm sure. But he talks about when a spouse comes to him who is in a distressed marriage, when they come in and talk with him, all they can talk about is what the other spouse is at fault, how, how they can blame the other partner. So Andy will say, you know, clearly the person who is the real problem here isn't here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a circle, and this circle represents 100% of the chaos, 100% of the pain in your marriage. I want you to draw whatever piece of the pie that represents the part for which you are responsible how much is on them? And so they'll draw a piece of the pie and, and then they'll come up with something mostly like this. It's almost inevitable as they look at this together, this is how much the problem is due to me. And I might be being generous. This is them. This is me. This is how much responsibility I'm willing to share. I got this little sliver over here. Andy will often say, well, since he isn't here or she isn't here, let's focus on your slice of the pie because it's the only slice on which we can really work. But this is what he says, and this is what he teaches. He says, it's interesting. In almost every case, people can't do it. They cannot talk about their slice. They keep coming back to his problem, her problem. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves to themselves, they show how foolish they are. Listen, what Jesus is calling us to in this passage is, is own your plank. Know your plank. See your plank. If if you worry about everyone else and it's always their problem and their issue and you're blaming them, blame doesn't get you anywhere. It wastes energy. It violates love. It spoils relationships. Jesus wants every one of us in this room this morning to own our plank. Rene Girard is a philosopher out of Stanford, and he argues that all cultures have a a system of scapegoating. Scapegoating, think about that. That's the practice where we find somebody or some group to pin all our blame on, even for things that are certainly not their fault. Gerard said that it's almost like a safety valve in communities. It's like all the blame and all the resentment, rivalry, anger, whatever it is, gets put on them so we don't have to own it ourselves. We see this in an elementary classroom. You might have one kid who gets picked on because they're different or they act differently. Maybe they're just a little awkward or clumsy. Nobody votes on that. It just happens. Somehow everybody knows that this is the scapegoat. Nations, we've seen it in history many times, have scapegoats. For Hitler, it was the Jews. In the Soviet Union, with Stalin, it was dissidents. In Rwanda, it was the Tutsis. I'm afraid we are coming dangerously close in America to saying it's immigrants. Because scapegoating people means dehumanizing them. And we've seen that. Now, here is what is interesting. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 16, we read how on the Day of Atonement, the priest would actually have a goat 
chosen by lot, and it was called the scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on it, he would confess the sins of Israel over it, and then he would release the goat into the wilderness. And it was simply a picture of the sins of Israel being removed from the camp and being forgiven by God. Now that was just a picture, but it's from where we get the name scapegoat. But Gerard said this, he said that in ancient cultures outside of Israel, sacrifices often involved human sacrifices, human victims who were sacrificed to appease the gods or to placate the gods. They were human scapegoats, which meant all the problems of the community, all the sins of the community would be put on them and pinned on them. The idea, of course, of sacrificing them would heal the community from chaos that nobody wanted to own. In fact, the idea of scapegoating a victim, the idea that it would heal the community was so ingrained in this thought process that in the Greek, the word for the victim who was the scapegoat was called pharmakos. That's where we get our word pharmacology, and that's why no one wants to go to the pharmacy because it's dangerous and whatnot. But we see this dynamic at work in Scripture, and I was fascinated as I thought about this. In the Bible, we see this dynamic again and again. Think about the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, unlike his brother Abel, makes a sacrifice that is not pleasing to God. Cain gets upset and angry, but instead of seeing the plank in his eye, instead of taking responsibility and owning it, to make things right, he does what? He scapegoats his brother and gets rid of his brother Cain doesn't see his plank. He takes it and instead kills his brother with it. He thinks, if I just get rid of Abel, I'll be okay. Now, Gerard noticed something in the Bible. He says, the stories of blame, scapegoating, would be told. But he said, in those stories of scapegoating, that the Bible was actually sympathetic to the victim, to the one who got scapegoated. He noticed that God actually cared about the victim. And God condemned the acts of people and families or nations that were scapegoated. God said, the blood of Abel cries out to me from the ground. And so I thought about that and I began to think, you know, he's right. In the story of Sarah and Hagar, remember that story? Some of you may not recall it, but, but I've been thinking, I've been spending some time with Hagar recently. Sarah is jealous of Hagar after she is about to have Abraham's son. And so Sarah treats her badly to the point where Hagar is just forced to leave the camp altogether. And it looks like Hagar is going to die. She's left alone. But an angel comes. And remarkably, this is what happens. In Genesis 16, Hagar is the first human being to name God. And she says to him, you are the God who sees me. And instead of a curse, God gives her a blessing. She would be the mother of a great nation. Joseph's brothers scapegoat Joseph and They get rid of him. They think, well, if we'll just get rid of Joseph, everything will be okay. But God cares about Joseph. 
In other words, in the Bible, in the ancient universal practice of scapegoating, it begins to be undermined, it begins to be collapsing, and all this comes to a climax, of course, with the person of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is the Holy One. He is sinless, absolutely blameless. And yet all of the powers that be, the religious powers... The, the political leaders, the money changers in the temple, all decide that Jesus is the problem. And they make Jesus the scapegoat. In fact, the only one who could have saved him, Pontius Pilate, washes his hands and says, don't blame me, I am innocent of this man's blood. Yet there is something different here going on with this scapegoat. Peter tells us, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Isn't it interesting that on the cross, He absorbs all our sins. Hatred, the violence, the wickedness of our world ultimately goes there. And Jesus makes atonement. He takes all the blame on himself. He is the ultimate scapegoat. That, by the way, is why this is a community where everybody is welcome. Because precisely the truth is nobody here is perfect. So Jesus says to us, listen, I want you to own your plank. See the plank, but don't miss this. Jesus says then, give me your plank. I'll carry it for you. I'll put it on my shoulders. And it will become the cross on which I'll die. Do you see the image? One of the things that means then is I don't have to straighten other people out. I can let God do that. Someone said, if you want to straighten people out, you ought to work in a funeral home. Because that's the only place where when you straighten people out, they stay straight. A lot of people tend to, to resist that. You know what? We can give up on the practice of trying to figure out everyone else's problems. Jesus gives us freedom here. He says, no, don't worry about that. Instead, practice taking responsibility for your own life. Look at that plank, own that plank, and then give it to me. What is your plank this morning? What is keeping you from seeing yourself clearly? God, help me see that. You know, the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of righteousness. God's willing to do that right now. If you'll let him. I've told this story before, but I find it fascinating. There was an engineer, his name was Charles Steinmetz. He lived about a century ago. He was working and he was an absolute genius. He was an engineer. He worked for General Electric, I believe. And 
as a part of their manufacturing. He was a part of every detail of their manufacturing operation. But when he retired, they found that there were some times when they were absolutely clueless about why things would break down because he was the expert. And so from time to time, they would have to call him up and say, hey, we need your help. Well, one particular time, they had a particularly difficult malfunction that no one could figure out, and they called him up and said, would you please come in? And he did. He, he came in, and he looked at the machinery for about five minutes, and all he did was take a piece of chalk suddenly and marked an X on the defective part that would need to be replaced, and he went home. But five days later, they got a bill from Charles Steinmetz for $10,000. Now, that was a lot back then. It was ridiculous. And so this caused some concern. And for, for five minutes of work, it just seems terribly excessive. So they, they asked him, would, would you itemize your bill for us? They thought that he might change his tune. So a few days later, he sent them back a bill with two items. It read, making a chalk mark, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. Every one of us has a plank. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Because of that, my life is just not working right. Something is out of whack. It's just not working like it should. And maybe we don't even know why. The psalmist says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. See, there is one who can see clearly even when I don't. And he looks into the to my soul and into my heart. And he says, if you'll let me, I'll reveal this to you. And boy, he is so gentle. When he reveals that to you, it is not to condemn you. It is to bring you to life. And if we will let him, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll make an X. And we can invite God to change us. See, our problem is we'd like to make an X on other people's lives. Oh, I figured out what his problem is. I got it. X. Here's where he needs to change. Here's what she needs to do differently. But this week, Jesus reminds us, let's let God put an X over our hearts. So that we can pray maybe the most important prayer we can pray. Lord, change me. Change my attitude. Change my lack of gratitude. Change my, my, my tendency toward rushing through the day and never enjoying your presence. Change the way I see people of the, other, of the opposite sex. Change the way I respond to my children. Change the way I see my spouse. your plank this morning are you willing to deal with that God doesn't ask you to keep the plank he says I'll take the plank and it's on that which I'll die for you so that you can live forever father I I thank you for 
this truth. For these moments, Lord, when we can just humbly ask that you search our hearts. How foolish we would be, Lord, to try to deal with other people's issues when we have a plank in our own. In fact, Lord, the truth is we would do so much harm. We will only hurt others. But if, Lord, we could take the time for you to deal gently and deeply with us, we would discover life and joy, freedom, hope. So, Holy Spirit, would you just settle in this place? And may I have the courage and to accept responsibility for the mess I've made. Help me, Lord, not to blame it on someone else, not to worry about someone else hearing this message, but may I take charge and say, Lord, it's me. Change me. Do something in me today. I give you my plank, and I thank you, Lord, for the hope of Calvary. Lord, your blood is sufficient to free me and for and allow me to find forgiveness and hope. So Lord, in these hours, in this, in these few minutes as we come, as we end this service, I pray that you would deal with us gently and we would hear your voice and we would see clearly. I pray this in your holy name.